0: Hello and welcome to the Knowledge Without College podcast. This is your host, Patrick Butler. And today I have the most amazing episode to share with you. I just got off such an amazing conversation with a guy named Joe Quirk. Joe is, uh, he works with the Seasteading Institute. Uh, They have this ambitious idea of having floating cities, floating homesteads or seasteads. And he was very excited to announce that they have the first official Seastead happening. Now we're three weeks into the Seasteading century. In addition to his work with the Seasteading Institute, Joe is an author of the book on Seasteading, as well as many other books we talk about in the first half of this podcast, his work with the Seasteading Institute and what it's all about. And then in the second half, we cover, you know, His writing process, creativity, and talking about college and academia and and, uh, all sorts of stuff like that. It was a phenomenal conversation. I had so much fun with it and I know you're going to love it. So please, without further delay, enjoy this conversation with Joe Quirk. Hey, Joe, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real honor to have you on the show.
1: Thanks for inviting me, Patrick.
0: Hey, so for the listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your work as it stands right now, could you tell them about the Seasteading Institute and how you got involved with it originally?
1: Uh, The Seasteading Institute is a nonprofit think tank committed to creating uh, floating uh, personal nations uh, on the ocean. Um, And seasteading is basically homesteading the high seas. And not many people know that uh, nearly half the world's surface is unclaimed by any government. And uh, seasteading is sort of, I think of it as a Silicon Valley approach to solving the problem of governance. So uh, I always think about uh, Steve Wozniak, who who designed the personal computer while he was working for Hewlett Packard. And he proposed, the personal computer five times to Hewlett-Packard. And all five times his superiors rejected it. Uh, it's never gonna work. And he had no means to make this happen in his company. And he was loyal and he to Hewlett-Packard and he loved Hewlett-Packard, but he was left with no choice but to break away and go try something new. And that very design became the original Apple computer with his partner, Steve Jobs. So if if he hadn't been able to break away and try something new, we wouldn't even be able to imagine what personal computers were like. Um, and right now we live in a world where our countries are designed, you know, when information traveled at the speed of, the, of a horse. They didn't predict Twitter, they wrote their rules in, in quill pens. And the original parameters were designed that way. And many regulations governing 21st te- technologies are, are governed by 20th century rules that don't make sense anymore. So the more, seasteaders believe that the more startup societies we can create on the ocean, the more new ideas can be discovered and new ways of doing things that we can't imagine now will be unleashed. So the technology to start proliferating these uh, is at hand. And as a matter of fact, I'm uh, very excited to be talking to you three weeks into what I'm calling the seasteading century. The first seastead is in international waters right now. Um, and three people have been living on it for about three weeks. So we've begun.
0: That is incredible. So this project, this current Seastead that's now operating, how long did it take for this project to unfold and and manifest and where is it located now?
1: That's, uh, there's a compelling answer to that because it's been a long, hard road. So the Seasteading Institute was founded 10 years ago, probably four years before I ever heard about it. Uh, Patry Friedman, grandson of Milton Friedman and son of David Friedman, uh, came up with uh, what he considered a technology for, to fulfill his family legacy, which is if people lived on the water instead of the land and uh, the, the, we could make our own land and land was uh, modular and you could detach and move about and choose the neighbors you want, you'd basically have variation among governments and selection by citizens. This would unleash uh, evolution and governance itself. So all we had to do was switch from civilization to civilization and we'd solve the problem of governance purely through uh, a market decentralized means. Uh, Peter Thiel really liked that idea. Uh, he's the co-founder of PayPal and first investor in Facebook. And he co-founded the Seasteading Institute with Patrick Friedman. I met Patrick Friedman at Burning Man. Uh, I was at my 10th Burning Man, and I noticed that uh, uh, rules evolve in ways that are not predictable, given their original parameters. And uh, just before I met Patry, I happened to be on a cruise ship. And I noticed it was essentially a floating city. <clears throat> and it appeared to be um, better governed than any city I'd ever been in. And it was cheaper than the coastal hotel I'd stayed in the night before. And I was trying to figure out why the cruise ship was so much better, and why it was flagged in Liberia or Panama—I don't remember which. And then when I met Patry, and he let me know that the oceans are basically unclaimed; it's a it's a blank slate where you can start your own governments. Because I'd been on a cruise ship, I realized floating cities were completely possible. If they can sail, they can hold still. What if cruise ships never docked? And because I'd written books about evolution, and I came to understand that. Um, the secret recipe for progress is variation and selection it even works in the technologies we're using now uh, when i realized uh, seasteading would essentially unleash uh, evolution in uh, governance itself i became i just thought that was a fabulous idea and i i pitched them saying this can't just be a blog uh, among silicon valley intellectuals, it needs to be a mainstream concept that lots of people are getting involved in. So I offered. I write populist books about science, and I also write novels, so I'm a storyteller. And the way you reach most people and move them is with story. So um, we got involved, we wrote the book, um, and we reached, you know, a thousand times more people, maybe much more than that. It's been in a lot of news sources, and eventually um, someone from French Polynesia reached out, uh, and we co-founded a company, Blue Frontiers, and tried to get this started in French Polynesia with an agreement with that country. Many seasteaders were saying, you can't be negotiating with governments. We wanted to negotiate saying we need you know, um, uh, a sea zone, which is a special area in their territorial waters, where we'd have some sort of significant autonomy, where we could scale up startup governance, as well as help... Um, coastal and Pacific and island nations adjust to sea level rise so it's a win win on all counts and it seemed like we were going to move forward to French Polynesia but it was uh, the project was significantly harmed by uh, an election so this is why we need to get away from politics so all I ever experienced in French Polynesia was love from everyone involved I mean we're basically continuing their tradition of choosing among islands you know, Polynesians are the original seasteaders. So they get the concept completely. Also, they control an area of ocean larger than Western Europe or as large as Western Europe. So we had lots of space to start this new blue continent of seasteading. Uh, and we would absorb the cost of failure, but if it succeeded, French Polynesia would be known as the great innovator of the new blue economy, which is a term they, uh, uh, independently came up with. But, uh, uh uh, when there was a presidential election that came along a uh the opposing party looked for anything to associate with the present president and they and all of a sudden all sorts of false stories were being spread in the press that we were going to pollute the lagoon that we were going to take away their fishing rights um basically fake news um uh even that it was going to be as large as dubai and all it was was taking the existing bungalows they already have, and, and, and letting them float and making them you know environmentally sustainable and filling them with science, marine scientists that would that would school their children it would have been great, but um, you know Mark Twain said you know a lie will travel around the world before while uh, the, well, the truth is still putting on its boots and that's what happened so uh, they didn't even come close to defeating the sitting president in the election but they did create a lot of bad will for the project. So a lot of the people have turned against the project and the government has been uh, unwilling to move forward at least until now. This was very frustrating to many of the volunteers that got in- involved. Uh, and two of our most, most staunch volunteers, Chad and Nadia, were actually living on the atoll where the, we thought the Seastead would be built. So an atoll is like a sunken volcano um, where it creates a natural ring in the water and you can sit in the middle of it. And it's a natural wave breaker. Wow. And the, you know, less than a thousand people who lived on this thing were very interested in hosting a seastead there. And Chad and Nadia were sort of scouting out the place, living there. They're both Bitcoin entrepreneurs um, thinking about, you know, how we're going to make a seastead work. And when they realized the government wasn't moving forward with legislating the sea zone, they said, uh, as Richard Branson does, screw it, let's do it. Uh, They left French Polynesia. They flew to Thailand. And Nadia is from Thailand. And lo and behold, you can go out into international waters off the coast of Phuket in the Andaman Sea, and the waves are relatively low. Uh, That's always been one of the reasons to negotiate with existing countries, because all the shallow waters are not high. So they founded their own company, Blue, uh, excuse me, Ocean.Builders, check that out if you're interested in buying your own Seastead. And within six months, uh, they got together with an aerospace engineer and uh, created a spar structure, um, which is sort of like a floating, think of it as a floating wine bottle filled with sand that then tips upright so that, you know, four fifths of it is above the water and tremendous weight is below the water. And then you can put a little tiny house on top of that and you're essentially uh, stable as a fence post in, uh, in, in waves. The waves just sort of pass beneath you and your house remains stable. Uh, you're sort of the first to hear about this in this detail. This has just happened. I just got back. Uh, from this place with a ton of footage, and I'm editing together the, uh, the documentary I'm going to make to announce to the world that seasteading has begun. And uh, they've been uh, living out there. And uh, they, we plan to sell uh, 20 more seasteads through Ocean Ocean.builders. Uh, and thanks for letting me tell that long story for how we, for how we got to the present place.
0: Absolutely, I mean that's super exciting to hear. You know, when I first heard you, I heard you on the Joe Rogan podcast. Uh, it must have been four years ago now, and you know, it felt like there was still a long ways to go, as a long uphill battle to get to this point. So, you know, I really commend you for you know sticking through and continuing on with this uh, this mission because you know it sounds like there's such a huge opportunity here for so many people that are you know living on the coast and threatened by you know, rising sea levels, that sort of stuff. So I'm curious to learn more about how these three people are living on the seastead. Now what's, how do they get resupplied? How large is this uh, area that they're living? in?
1: Well, it's a very tiny house and uh, when you're on it, you can look in any direction you basically can't see land. Maybe, maybe on a, on a, on a clear day, you can see uh, some mountains in the distance. Um, so they're 12 miles from shore, so it takes about two to three hours by sailboat and 20 to 30 minutes by motorboat. And you have to keep in mind that motorboat consumes a lot of gas, so there's a certain amount of cost to, to bolting out there. Um, so uh, it's, it's easy to supply the place because they live in a community of fishermen. So there's lots of fishermen out there that are very curious, uh, and they stop by and they've already bought fish from the fishermen. Uh, They've also, they post on their Facebook page, you know, check out uh, Ocean Builders' uh, Facebook page, and they're posting all the time their videos and uh, photos of like the tuna tartare they had for breakfast yesterday. They're already growing seaweed that's edible on the seastead. And um, all of us, all, all countries, big and small, all islands become wealthy through trade. Uh, they're both Bitcoin entrepreneurs, so they pretty much have flawless internet uh, through a satellite. Um, and uh, dolphins visit them almost every day. And the way they're going to grow food as they scale up and build a neighborhood of these little seasteads out there is they're already growing what's called bio rock on the sides of the spar, which is underwater. And uh, there's something called the wolf Hillbirth process by which you can basically send an electrical current you know through a wire and uh, you basically grow a seashell city you basically grow a seashell shell around the seastead so they're essentially creating uh artificial coral they're turning the seastead into a coral reef uh, slowly over time and a lot of people also don't realize that when you're on the high seas it's basically a desert. There's very little life because all organic matter sinks well below where sunlight can reach. If there's anything solid on the ocean, uh, life congregates around it, muscles attach to it, fish come to eat uh, the stuff, filter feeders jump on there, and you create a little ecosystem. Um, and they're working on this. So imagine if every society you build uh, increases the amount of life in the world. So this is way beyond sustainable. This is environmentally restorative. And it's already starting with the first minimal viable product of seasteading. So their plan is to have a little natural fish farm and uh, ecosystem around their seastead that would be cage-free. Because once the uh, fish and other creatures start breeding and living on the seastead, they have no other place to go. They want to hang out around the coral, uh, coral crete, we call it now. Because the uh, aerospace engineer has actually invented a new process that makes it grow at least three times as fast. Um, So you're going to have a natural ecosystem there where they can just um, fish out of it and eat all they want uh, and trade fish. And it's very healthy. And they just posted uh, photos on their blog showing that the Seastead is already acting as a fish aggregation device. So fish are coming in uh, to live around it.
0: Wow, Uh, that is all really amazing stuff. I I had no idea. I'm curious, uh, how do they get electricity? Do they have some sort of solar and battery system set up?
1: So on the roof, they have um, solar set up, and it's just enough to make like a roof to a porch. And they can sit out on the roof and lounge and have shade. Uh, And the structure holding the uh, solar panels also acts as a lightning rod. So it's funny, many of the problems people cite, oh, what about waves, what about pirates, what about sharks, are not problems. The problems are things you wouldn't predict. And the type of thing that people don't predict is, you're out there in the middle of the ocean in a tropical area, you know, you're gonna be struck by lightning. That's something to think about. Uh, you're all alone. Um, so you have to set up this sort of, they have this sort of cage, or, or think of it as a metal pillars. You'll see it when I release the, the, uh, the videos that will sort of absorb the sunlight and and take it past them. But this thing also uh, serves the process of holding up the solar panels, which give them all the electricity they want. And if something goes wrong, they have a backup generator, which they still haven't used. Uh, And they have, you know, a little guest bedroom. They have a little bathroom. They have a little kitchen. Uh, And it's amazing. Every time they upload a little video, they're so full of smiles. uh, You could just feel how happy they are and how proud they are to have made the seastead live out there. And imagine you wake up in the morning, you can see the sunrise It goes over your head. Then you see it sunset. It's way cheaper than lots of beachfront property around the world. And you have a 360 degree view of the ocean.
0: That's incredible. And, uh, yeah, I'm a little about well, me. I'm, I'm a co-founder of a solar company, so I love that. Love to get involved there. Um, and, uh, I'm curious for for the people living on the or, or how much does did this say cost? I imagine the cost of this one might have, might be higher than what it could be in the future as they sort of scale up this process. But uh, you mentioned it's cheaper than oceanfront property. Do we have a any sort of figures there?
1: It's cheaper than the cost of the average American home. So this is just the pilot project. Uh, they're already designing the second one. So this is like, you know, the first iPhone. So it's just a little like octagonal little house, a tiny house sitting on the sea and the breakthrough for seasteading. It's, it's always been like, it's, it's the problem has never been, can you build something that floats on the high seas? Well, of course, uh, oil companies, uh, fossil fuel exploration companies, they do it all the time. They just have to spend a billion dollars. Well, a billion dollars is, is is too big a jump to ask any investor to make. And of course, the real dream would be to make this cheap enough that you don't need investors. You just need individuals to buy uh, the houses that they can afford. Well, the just the pilot project uh, in its entirety costs one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So that's something any middle class American or Westerner can afford. So we've basically uh, ocean builders has beaten the price point of your average house. And then consider that there's no property taxes. Uh, there's no excise taxes. Uh, there no tariffs. Uh, they plan to accept uh, barges from China, paying no taxes in Thailand. In Thailand, uh, drones are illegal. I completely uh, filmed these guys with drones flying over their heads. I didn't do it. I just demanded that it be done. And then we had to pay professionals to do it. Um, and, and, uh, so ocean builders have at their own expense built this pilot designed it, towed it out. And they've already learned all sorts of lessons about how to make the next one even better. And you can make them build bigger. Uh, this is a firm foundation for a home on the ocean. This is our Kitty Hawk moment. You know, I I point out to people that, you know, the Wright brothers, you know, a century ago, they flew the first airplane, you know, they had their 15 second flight and they knew they had the breakthrough. And 66 years later, men were walking on the moon. So the Seasteading Institute and people around the world have been struggling with, you know, how do you pass the Martini test in high waves? How do you pour that martini, a martini on the deck of your seastead all the way to the brim and it doesn't spill? Well, ocean builders have basically done it. Uh, maybe they're a little bit off. I've, I, I forced them to pour a glass of wine. I was demanding, <laughs> pour a glass <laughs> of wine, pan from the glass of wine to the ocean and show me that the waves and, and it, it, they pulled it off. It looks beautiful. You, you maybe see slight ripples in the, in the wine in, on a, in like a, a high wind day and most days it's very calm out there. Um, And we have that shot. And I can't wait to to edit all this stuff together. And it it was so pleasurable at our 10 year uh, anniversary. You know, you talk about the Joe Rogan show. You know, it's brutal for the last six years doing these interviews because everything has to be described. Well, it could be like this and well, it could be like that. Well, what Mm -hmm. about the law? And it's all theoretical. Well, now we have something to point to. There it is, that's how it works. I don't have to describe how the spar structure works, I can show you an actual video of it. And now everybody's gonna start grokking that this is real, it's happening, it's not just for rich people, there's no danger of pirates, there's no danger of tsunamis. We have actual, um, an actual seastead demonstrating how it works. And I'm looking forward to selling them this, the second, third, fourth, and fifth. And if people are interested in this, they should check out ocean.builders
0: that's incredible. I'm curious about how uh you foresee people making a living while on one of these seasteads. So the two people that are, or the people that are living on that seastead now, you mentioned they're bitcoin entrepreneurs. Uh not sure if they do they have like a a, a current job or are they sort of just
1: doing everything remotely. They're doing everything remotely. Um and the way you make a living on a seastead is to do something way better Uh, than you can do in the world's governments that suck. Uh, Probably top on the list is medical research. So, you know, among the Futurist Cube community in Silicon Valley, everyone knows that we can radically accelerate uh, technologies for life extension and solve all sorts of uh, huge problems, or at least the medical researchers think they can, including Alzheimer's, stroke, heart disease, if we can accelerate some of the research. The problem is these 21st technologies are stuck in uh, 20th century rules. And you know, if it costs a billion dollars to bring a, a drug to market, and we've radically accelerated the techniques by which better drugs are discovered, then all these innovative people just can't enter the market. So if people go out to Seasteads, do research out there, Uh, and then people can go to the Seasteads and perhaps take the therapies at their own uh, risk, we can discover things much more quickly. That may be controversial, but also imagine uh, floating hospitals or floating um, medical uh, ships uh, that provide uh, therapies much cheaper, much faster outside existing systems, which basically clot things up. Imagine a free market in healthcare starting on Seasteads. Um, this goes on and on when I love seasteading as I described it to you as an idea as a principle it wasn't until I went to the 2012 seasteading conference that I met the actual uh trying to get involved with seasteading and there were seaweed farmers that want to scale up uh, seaweed uh, mass seaweed farming of the oceans which would be environmentally restorative um, this in less than a month i'm going to go interview the first seasteading business which is more than three miles off the coast of california growing mussels, um, because the regulations in california are so prohibitive um, and i've talked to probably a dozen seaweed farmers that want to find a way to get outside existing regulatory structures to scale up these new techniques that have been discovered for how we farm the oceans you know imagine you know if we replaced corn wheat and soy with uh, sea crops, which are not uh, environmentally destructive, they're actually reduce the carbon in the oceans. We could reduce the ocean acidification if we you know, change our land farms to sea farms, but c- current governments are preventing this from happening. There's uh, uh, fish farmers who wanna scale up, who wanna repopulate the oceans with uh, happy, humanely treated fish. Uh, they've basically proven the technology But the laws written in 1970, (laughs) I'm exaggerating slightly, but the laws written a long time ago uh, to prevent fish farms near the coast, which tend to harm the coasts, are preventing these high-tech Buckminster Fuller-style seasteads that are on the high seas now. Those guys are trying to get outside the regulatory structures. So the problem with the advancement of humanity is that All our technologies, especially our information technologies, are radically advancing, but our governance technologies are just not. They're just stuck, and they're preventing uh, all these new technologies from being unleashed, and the seasteading ones are uh, featured in the book. Um, And if you don't have time to read the book, check out The Eight Great Moral Imperatives of Seasteading, where I feature each of the eight aquapeneurs in little five-minute videos each talking about the technology they wanna scale up on the seas. And you watch all eight of those videos and you start imagining what's possible. Uh, We can't even imagine all the ways that innovations are being held back because our governments can't innovate because they're basically 193 monopolies uh, holding sway over seven and a half billion people. So I'm curious how uh...
0: I'm imagining a situation where this technology advances and maybe you have people living in California want to break away from this regulatory, you know, all the regulations and they want to establish their own seasteads off the coast of California. At what point do you think it might frustrate or aggravate the government? Do you think at any point, uh, you know, the United States government would step in? How does that work as being a United States citizen? If you're living in international waters, do you still get the protection of a government? How
1: do, do you have any insight on, on some of those situations? Sure. The, um, the seasteading is going to happen incrementally. So these, these, uh, three people are living, uh, on the seastead. Uh, one of them is American and he is still an American citizen unless he, you know, pays a considerable amount of money and go through an onerous process of renouncing his citizenship. Um, someone else is from Thailand, someone else is from Germany. They all have unique relationships with their citizenship. But suppose two of them are in love. Suppose nine months from now, a baby is born on the Seastead. The United Nations has a whole department devoted to the prevention of statelessness among children, and I know uh, some Seasteading lawyers who've done amazing volunteer scholarship for us, who are eager to argue on the floor of the United Nations that this baby deserves sovereignty and that the floating seastead should be uh, recognized as sovereign. I think we have a good humanitarian case for that, especially if seasteads are also happening countries like Kiribati, which is spelled Kiribati, um, adjust to sea level rise because they're scheduled to completely disappear by the end of this century. It's a country in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. So we're not just on an engineering frontier, we're on a legal frontier, because there is no legal definition for a seastead. There are legal definitions for a vessel. Uh, There are legal definitions for an artificial island. Uh, What what exactly is a permanently floating man-made island that can also move about? Um, We hope to uh, provoke this kind of discussion in an arena of uh, uh, compassion and empathy, not in one of threat to existing governments but suppose we are a threat to existing governments suppose we um start uh rat, people start fl- you know we have seasteads off the coast of california and people are exiting uh the healthcare system and heading out to these seasteads and getting much cheaper therapies and basically start putting some of these hospitals out of business or whatever uh, how will the government react will they send in the u-boats will they send in the fighter jets what, what will they do? Well, the only way to answer this question is to look at precedents. So uh, let's look at the Cayman Islands. Um, I always cite uh, Devi Shetty, who is Mother Teresa's former heart surgeon from India, who's been called the Henry Ford of healthcare, who's uh, responsible for uh, providing healthcare for uh, Indians for. He started at like $0.25 a month, and he got it down to $0.10 a month. Rural poor Indians by uh, providing heart surgery to rich Westerners for a tenth of the cost that they could get in their home countries. So people were flying to India to uh, get his heart surgeries, and they were uh, surviving at better rates than the average uh, American hospital in India. So Devi Shetty is this amazing humanitarian. He went to the Cayman Islands and opened up a, a, a multi-billion dollar health city, You know to catch the rising wave of frustrated Americans leaving their uh, country to go get better, faster, cheaper healthcare in uh, uh, the Cayman Islands. So the Cayman Islands has become fabulously rich by playing this sort of jurisdictional arbitrage against the U.S. In the 1980s, they were primarily, basically in 1980, they were a barter economy. Um, Their primary uh, export was like turtle farming (laughs) or fishing. I think it was turtle uh, fishing. Now everyone knows their name because they are famous for being one of the wealthiest low-tax islands just off the coast of the U.S. for decades now. They take a very spiteful stance against the U.S., Uh, They welcome uh, financial mavericks. They welcome medical mavericks. Uh, I feature a story in the book about uh, Obama, uh, President Obama scolded them for being uh, a a tax haven. And incredibly, the very next day, the Cayman Islands issued a letter uh, reminding the U.S. of the services they provide (laughs) to all sorts of powerful people in their country. And the U.S. dropped it, didn't ever mention it again. So think about this. Uh, Cayman Islands, the 57,000 people live there. They have no standing army. They have no way to defend themselves. Um, And and they stood up to the most powerful nation in the world without hesitation. It's not even like they sat around and had a committee talking about what to write. They immediately responded. Um, And so the way I talk about it is if you set up your Seastead, um, you want to... You don't want to be like um, Noriega in the 1980s in Panama. You don't want to directly spite the values and run like a drug ring. (laughs) You want to act like the Cayman Islands. You want to act like Trinidad and Tobago, six miles off the coast of socialist Venezuela, which is very wealthy, one of the wealthiest countries in the Caribbean. Venezuela doesn't invade them. You want to think like a cleaner fish in a world of sharks. And that's the method by which sea land isn't invaded by the UK, which is just an abandoned fort that was taken over and featured in that movie uh, Pirate Radio. Uh, uh, Hong Kong is not invaded by China, and they have no way to defend themselves. Uh, Singapore does have a way to defend itself, but they're not invaded by Malaysia. And if you look at most of the wealthy island nations around the world, from Iceland to Malta, uh, they have no army. They have no way to defend themselves. They put all their money into providing services to the world. And uh, no politician rises to fame saying, let's invade, you know, uh, the Cayman Islands. So seasteads have to do the same thing. And you can scale up considerably before the big, slow dinosaur of the government decides to actually send in uh, an invading army. You know, conquerors have incentives. They have to think they get something from the considerable cost of invading someone that uh, that will pay for the cost of the invasion. And if you want to think about eds, um cruise ships do the same thing. Cruise ships uh, pick up people in countries, take them 12 miles out, and then let them do things they can't do in their host countries, and the countries don't send out the u-boats um, so uh, I think uh, seasteads have to make the same incremental smart choices as they move forward
0: that's that's awesome I love that that's really cool um, I'm, and I hope you don't mind me playing devil's advocate, but I'm just imagining you know a bunch of scenarios and I, and I it seems like you have an answer for all of them so uh, one of the other questions that comes to mind and I imagine it comes to some of the listeners mind as well is, is what do you do with like trash and waste from these seasteads? How do you uh, dispose of those in a renewable or, uh, you know, sustainable way?
1: Great question answered at length in the book. And people have to start from the existing problem, which is the trash in the oceans is primarily coming from land, not from boats. Uh, 80% of the, uh, uh Pollution from uh, that harms the coasts. Uh, the nutrient pollution basically comes from land. So when you poop on land, you're basically pooping in the ocean. Uh, and if you're not pooping in the ocean, the food you eat is. So the the oceans, uh, the dead zones in the oceans are caused by mass industrial farming of land, uh, which depletes the soils, and most of that just ends up in the ocean, destroying marine life. Uh, I wrote a whole book about that uh, for the Marine Mammal Center, uh, which was the last book I wrote before I discovered seasteading. Uh, most of the plastic in the ocean comes from like eight or 10 rivers <laughs> in Asia. Wow. So, so the worst thing you can do for the oceans is live on land. <laughs> <laughs> so now we want to talk about seasteads. So I already mentioned how the first seastead is already uh, good, environmentally restored it's already uh, increasing the amount of life on the oceans. Uh, And it's gonna continue to scale up as it grows coral out on the seas. Uh, uh, Our engineers at Blue Frontiers actually devised a plan to position seasteads in such a way around existing coral reefs to create enough shadows uh, to lower temperatures just enough to spark the restoration of the corals while still allowing enough sunlight through to allow photosynthesis. Uh, on on the on the seafloor, if it's shallow enough. So imagine if you could spark the restoration of the coral simply by the presence of your floating platform. Now suppose we have gigantic cities on the ocean. How are those people going to eat? Are they going to uh, import soy-based food? No, they're more likely going to grow um, uh, seaweed farms and fish farms and algae fuel on the oceans. Um, Featured in the book is a company called uh, Delta Sync, a Dutch company, which uh, has a vision for putting a billion people on the ocean by 2050. And they have plans for how their algae-based cities, which they design, will absorb the coastal runoff from the distant cities and transform that nutrient pollution into food and fuel that they can sell back to the cities, algae-based. This would not only restore the coasts, uh, it would... Uh, Rutger de Graff, the visionary behind this idea, thinks that there would be no exchange of money. It would be a non-monetary symbiotic model where the floating city would be restoring the coasts uh, uh, at a profit and then selling the, or, or providing the biofuel and, and uh, uh, restorative food back to the city. Once you're really on the high seas, you can scale up uh, seaweed farms. Uh, Neil Sims, the the guy who has the idea to repopulate the oceans with uh, fish inside uh, cages that float out in the sea, uh, so that the cages move with the schooling fish, uh, talks about how, you know, when when, uh, pioneers settled the American West in North America, uh, they didn't just build cities, they built farms, and then people came to serve the farms. And we can do the same thing on the oceans. Uh, the oceans are far more vast than any continent. And these would be environmentally uh, restorative uh, farms that would absorb uh, 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 carbonic acid from the oceans and transform that into food and potentially fuel. And the more uh, carbonic acid you absorb from the oceans, the more carbon the oceans absorb from the air So you could turn back the clock of this carbon problem we have in the US, if you agree that this is a big problem. Uh, There's also, um, for billions of years, uh, nature has been dropping um, uh, carbon to the bottom of the seas that sunlight can't reach. Over Over, say, 100 million years, that transforms into fossil fuel, which is basically the oil is mostly algae from the days of the dinosaurs, and we pull that up and reburn it. Uh, well, a lot of this uh, just a, you know, a few hundred feet down, there's just all this uh, nutrients, uh, which is basically the elixir of life sort of floating in the deep oceans, that sunlight can't reach. If you send a pipe down and pull this stuff up you can basically grow ocean gardens uh, out in the water. All you need is a permanently floating platform, uh, which you could pull up all this nutrient pollution and increase the amount of life uh, on the oceans. Um, as a matter of fact, um, most of the life, most of the ecosystems on the ocean are something like one tenth of 1% of the ocean's surface, the places where you know, water strikes a coast or strikes an island and then wells up, uh, pushing up all this nutrient pollution where these vast ecosystems sprout. But well, what if you could you know, move it up to two-tenths of 1% with ocean cities? Uh, you would double the amount of ecosystems on the ocean. And all this would be absorbing uh, 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 carbonic acid from the oceans and transforming it into food and fuel that the world can use so we there are so many things about living on the ocean that require us to completely flip our land-based assumptions and reconceive society from the ground up the only challenge is we can't uh do it from the ground so i'm moving through a lot of these technologies very quickly and i understand it's hard to take it all in but it's described in detail uh in the seasteading book through interviews with the the leading innovators trying to make this happen who are interested in Seasteading.
0: Well, I, you know, I've already ordered the book and I recommend everyone listening order the book as well. Cause I mean, this, this sounds really, really amazing. I, I can't even imagine uh, what other problems, you know, we can solve with this sort of technology moving in this direction. I'm also curious about how, you see uh, the different, you know, if there were a scenario where there's all different seasteading uh, floating cities, how the governments of those cities would evolve and what kind of additional liberties or freedoms you could see those people enjoying that we're not able to enjoy, you know, in our current system.
1: Yeah, I was just uh, uh, speaking at Anarcopulco and I showed us, you know, I said, seastead solved two of the biggest problems in the world. Ah, uh, sea level rise, and I showed a picture of the sea level rise. And then I said the lack of innovation in governance. And then I showed a picture of judges wearing wigs from the seventeenth century. And everybody laughed. Uh, but consider the fact that English common law is some of the most advanced legal system in the world. Um, you know, you take English common law, you import it to a special economic zone in Dubai. And all of a sudden, you combine English common law with Sharia law, and they vastly grow this wealthy place in the blank slate of a desert. <laughs> you know, that's just one of the dynamics. So the World Bank has already figured out that the most valuable thing in the world uh, is not your resources, it's not the talent you have, it's not education, it's not even your culture, all of which are very important. The most valuable thing in the world is the rule of law you plant. Uh, from which everything else sprouts. So um, there's been all these little countries around the world exploring possibility space, and it looks like one of the most successful uh, legal systems in the world was the one that emerged through evolution uh, in England and became English common law. And that's been imported around the world in various ways to Hong Kong, which vastly uh, exceeded the growth of, of communist China and then ended up persuading Communist China to change its markets to be more open. It did a lot to allow the U.S. to become much wealthier as compared to uh, some of the Southern American and Middle American countries that are based more on Napoleonic law. And it's all very complex, but you know the, these parameters were, were forged with quill pens. And we're still working within, within these primitive legal systems. They can't even get past the wig rule. The judges still have to wear those stupid wigs. <laughs> in, in Dubai, they're wearing those wigs and robes when they, when they preside over a case among businesses. So wow. the, the amount of innovation that has occurred uh, uh, since we were sending smoke signals <laughs> or, or say the telegraph is, 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 is incredibly advanced. Um, people are coming up with blockchain governance. People are innovating in all sorts of ways. The world is full of the Wozniaks of governance, and they have no wet place where they can go and show where their things work. Uh, At Anarcopulco, I was surrounded by uh, cryptocurrency and and crypto uh, information people that have all sorts of ideas, and all they're talking about is how do we work within existing systems or get around them to make this happen? How do we replace the existing systems? Well, it's pretty hard if you have to do it in this legal structure. But it, when you say, hey, for only a billion dollars, we can we can do a blank slate on the ocean. Those guys come to you with their ideas. When you're a seasteader at the Seasteading Institute, the innovators of the world come to you with their ideas about what they can do. Um, so all this governance, seasteading is is not an idea for how societies should be designed. It's a technology for other people to try their ideas. And what makes Seasteading different is that it's uh, small, and it scales up. And it's modular, so if people don't like something, they can move away. So it's literally the technology for voluntary governance. Um, So if people can choose them voluntarily, leave them voluntarily, create them voluntarily, and they go out of business, like a cruise ship, if they don't please us, then unimaginable uh, things will emerge. And I I compare it to those guys that were presiding over Wozniak with his crazy idea that each individual could have a computer. And they're saying, well, like, how is this going to work? How are you going to, suppose you get computers the size of a wallet? what would be the app you have on it? What's the app you want to create? And Wozniak has no idea. I can't imagine what the app is. It's just a platform for other people to try their ideas. And I'm sure when Benjamin Franklin was in Europe trying to persuade the royalty of France to support the U.S., I'm sure they were asking, like, well, well, Manhattan Island, like, how is that going to be wealthy? How is it going to be governed? How is it going to work? Why would it be better than the kingdoms we have right now? And Benjamin Franklin was... I'm sure flummox saying, well, I, I, it's unimaginable. We can't imagine what it would be. We just know we would start it over, and we've attracted the best people in the world to start it. And in principle, it would be unimaginably better uh, than what we have now. And the reason I say it's, it's in principle is because it would be evolution. It would be variation in a government, and then it would be selection by residents, And then there would be more variation because more seasteads could be created. And then if that seastead didn't work, it could disassemble and those could move about and people could try their own ideas. And you'd have all these governance providers learning from each other, trying to outcompete each other where they know if residents don't like it, they could go somewhere else. So we would unleash uh, evolution in governance itself on the high seas.
0: I love that. And, and I think it, You really, uh, it makes a lot of sense what you're describing, how it's, it's hard to predict how this sort of, uh, this technology or this having floating cities floating, you know, all these potentials, how much it can unleash. It's hard to predict those things, but I'm curious from your perspective, given that you've thought about this probably more than most, (laughs) probably more than, you know, 99.9% of all people, uh, where, what do you think would be like, uh, like, like where do you see this going? Like if we were to fast forward a hundred years in the future, what would you like to see as part of floating cities? What kind of things would you imagine would be like, this would be amazing. This would be uh, so much better for humanity if we had X, Y, and Z.
1: I mean a hundred years from now, man, that's a tough place to go. I mean, first of all, people be living a lot longer because medical innovation would be so accelerated on the seas. And yet, I mean, it's very, I, I can talk about seasteading in 2030, and then I can talk about seasteading in, in 2050. And, and if you go 100 years from now, um, we'll, we'll, uh, our grandchildren will wonder, they'll look back on the 20th century, this primitive world where we lived in these uh, governance monopolies known as nation states that were all put out of business in their, in their parents' age. Because the the civilization which I, would would be flourishing on the oceans, uh, and it it will seem so primitive, um, and so they won't even think of it as themselves as living in states. They'll be living in voluntary societies. They'll be mobile. They'll be moving about. They'll be 3D printing their own little worlds, um, and they won't uh, they won't be taxed because they'll be paying for governance services, which will be incredibly cheap because you'll have a hundred years of this market of people competing to provide better services. And it's equivalent to like uh, me trying to imagine, you know, uh, uh, say when I was a kid, I used to send um, uh, postcards to my friends. Uh, I used to also take a time to write letters on a, on a piece of paper. And then I would, I would put it in a little envelope and I'd have to wait a week for it to be delivered. And if it was sent across a sea, it would be, um, uh, you know, it sometimes wouldn't even arrive, and if it did arrive, sometimes it'd be a month later, depending on which country you sent it from. And we would read science fiction novels uh, about people having mass um, uh, uh, telepathy that they could instantly communicate uh, across the sea. And it was, it was pretty funny the way they they imagined it. Um, so my, the letter I was using, or the postcard, was a government-provided technology, and the only way. Um, you could send something that far was to put a stamp on it, let the government do it, and then someone could have asked me, "Well, 30 years from now, how do you imagine this working? Where people are just going to, you know, have conversations from different parts of the country and look at each other's faces while they're, while they're talking like they have on Star Trek? How will this so-called email you talk about? How's that going to work? Um, how will some obscure person, uh, you know, in the in the Midwest?" Uh, post a video of themselves that if it's popular enough, millions of people can get access to it and share it with each other. And that person will suddenly become a temporary celebrity because of something they did spontaneously. And it's sort of like, it's unimaginable when you, it would be, you're unlocking the creativity of billions of people uh, with your technology for allowing people to share information. So I feel like I'm in that position now where I'm right now I'm looking at a postcard saying like, well, what if, what if we could make this much better? Uh, what if, what if we could break up the monopoly of land and people could actually sail about and there wouldn't be these vast continents that conquerors can control because you can't get a foothold as people are sailing about. So I think it will a hundred years from now, um, the rules by which we get along will be invisible and they will be so, uh, easily understood and intuitive that it'll be as simple as sending a text uh, and as unimaginable to me as it was when I was a kid, when I was writing postcards.
0: Wow. Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so where do we go from here? Like, you know, it this is such a powerful idea. So many possibilities here. How do we persuade more people to buy into this idea? Where, where do you point people and, and how do you, what sort of the next steps from here?
1: The next step is for anyone uh, listening to this podcast to go to ocean.builders.com um, and buy the second Seastead or get involved with the timeshare to buy the second Seastead. Um, so the key, once you understand evolution, you realize your ideas don't matter. All that matters is what you think you can do on the, on the second little tiny seastead. Uh, and then that will attract people to the third seastead. And so it's like the, the, the networked intelligence of all these innovative people is way smarter than uh, what I can imagine for the first 20 seasteads. They're going to go out there and create something completely unpredictable and also face unpredictable problems. So if you want to learn more about seasteading, go to seasteading.org. You can get my book, I have tons of uh, uh, of information now, videos you can watch. Uh, I, I appreciate you playing devil's advocate because I, I, most people listening are naturally playing devil's advocate. And we have a series of videos called Tough Questions Answered, where we answer all these tough questions in a minute and a minute and a half in a of little videos. Um, and uh, uh, so I think people who think they have a better idea, should start uh, thinking of ways they can afford and buy uh, the seasteads provided by Ocean Dot Builders and see if they can scale something up and network with other people and timeshare a seastead or pay more money for a bigger, more stable seastead or maybe start seasteads in another part of the world where they think they can get these things going. Um, by the way, I'm making a lot of my videos with uh, a young 18 year old who's hugely. Um, uh, creative and he, he's, he's never been to college and I hope he never goes.
0: <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, that goes right in line with the knowledge without college brand there.
1: <laughs> yeah. And, so. and I, I'd be happy to talk about how I sucked at school if
0: you want. Sure. You got a, you got a few minutes to talk about that. I'd love to hear because you're doing such ambitious things. You're doing You're taking on massive problems, like problems that most people Don't even try to imagine a solution to because it seems so impossible. So, you know, what what was it like? Did you go to college at all? Did you, uh, like, how did you get into this space at all where you're able to, you know, take an idea, run with it, and now you're seeing the results of it?
1: I didn't uh, learn. I didn't start learning until I finished with education. (laughs) So I'll be honest with you. I loved kindergarten. Kindergarten, it was wrestling. It was playing. It was creativity. Uh, First grade was misery. Uh, Second grade was more misery. Uh, I had to sit in a wooden desk. I had to hold still. I had to listen to a very boring female teacher that I didn't find interesting. Uh, And I remember recess would come, and there would be this explosion of energy and excitement and play, and then the bell would ring, and it would be depressing. Friday would come. It would be ecstasy. Sunday night would come and I would finish watching the $6 million man. And I would know I'd have to go back to that temporary prison. Uh, I have kind of a heartbreaking story where I remember uh, used to go to school for half days in kindergarten, I think, or maybe it was first grade where you had to go for full days. And I didn't know this. And I sat through the first day of school and I walked home from lunch and I ate lunch with my mother and I was so relieved it was over. And then I told her, okay, can I go outside and play? And she said, what are you talking about? You have to go back to school. And I said, what are you you talking about? I just went to school. And she said, no, you're you're in full days now. You have to go back to school. And I remember saying, I have to go to school twice in one day. (laughs) And so as a six-year-old, I was aware that this is never gonna end, that it's gonna keep getting harder, that the demands on me are, are never gonna stop, and I was being uh, committed to this misery, uh, and I despaired, um, and I was, I, I was right about that. And by the time I was in third grade, I was a discipline problem. It, it, uh, this, this, uh, this sitting still was, was intolerable, uh, and I was very aware that all the girls enjoyed cooperating, they enjoyed listening to the teacher, and there was a rank of how smart they were, smart based on their grades, and the least uh, well-performing girl uh, was doing better than the best performing boy, And I was at the bottom of all that. So uh, I remember both in third grade and in fifth grade, I never uh, from the first day of school to the last day of school, I couldn't get through it without getting detention. This was, it was just impossible to be good, as they said. Bad reports were made to my parents. I was grounded, I was punished. Uh, Junior high school, uh, tormented and beaten by kids uh, because I was a nerd and I was a boy scout. Um, Many of those guys would grow up to go to prison. So now as an adult, I realize, you know, I was locked in a part-time prison with future criminals and I had to just face being tormented by them. I went off to a very conservative college, uh, a Catholic college um where uh in uh, by the time i was in 11th and 12th grade english teachers were recognizing me as a guy that had uh, a flair for writing and a flair for telling stories uh i I was i was a young irish kid who was good at writing so i so i figured i found something i was good at went off to college as an english major started getting d's and c's on my papers couldn't understand it couldn't understand it Um, uh, when I was a, 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 a junior, I finally just, I took a class in Shakespeare and I loved Shakespeare and I couldn't believe how boring the lectures were. And the lectures were would end and I'd feel like the expert in Shakespeare never got into the meat of what's so interesting about this play. Um, and there was this um, woman I knew that was talking about, she was a friend of mine and she said, oh, his classes are so easy. You just write a paper and he gives you an A. And I'm like, I'm getting Cs and Ds. And he gave me an F on one of my papers, like, what am I doing wrong? And so she let me her papers. And then I had this realization that as far as I was concerned, she was following instructions that they taught us in the blue book. I don't know if, you, if you're old enough to remember these blue book essays were introductory essay, three supporting paragraphs, then concluding paragraphs, then you're through, you know, these five, this this structure. And I realized I'm being punished for thinking independently. I'm being punished for producing my own thoughts. Um, and I, uh, I, I realized, well, of course, look at the incentives of the teacher. He's got to go through 30 of these papers. He doesn't want to go through my eight-page paper. He wants to read the five-page paper written by this woman who follows instructions and gives him back what he told her in class. Um, by the time I was a senior, I had basically withdrawn um, from, not from school, but from the social scene, which was drinking um, and getting drunk and throwing up at the Catholic school. And I didn't drink. And I think uh, all these students were trying to anesthetize themselves because they were mostly miserable. So uh, instead of going to the bars with my roommates, I discovered the computer, uh, which was an Apple IIe that my roommate had. And I stayed home and I started writing this story. And I'd always written stories. But uh, the story always fell apart in a maze of circles and arrows and crossouts. It wasn't until I discovered the word process, processor on my roommate's computer that I realized, wow, I can take this set- sentence and move it up here. And suddenly I had a tool that worked like my brain. So during the course of my senior year, I just started writing this story about college kids. And it just kept growing and growing and growing and it didn't stop. And I spent 10 months writing it and it wasn't until I started printing it out that I got up above page 300 and I realized I've accidentally written a novel before my 22nd birthday. Wow. Um, And it was 365 pages long. I remember that because it was close to the number of days in the year. And by then... A teacher at my school, Ellen Goodman, who I'm still friends with, had picked me out as this, you know, talented raconteur who wrote uh, fascinating papers. Uh, And she started giving me private classes uh, in Milton. And she was the one I shocked letting her know that I'm the only one who reads Milton and Shakespeare. All these kids getting A's, they're not reading the material. They're listening in class. They're good at listening and giving back. And that's how they're getting their A's. And she just couldn't believe this was true. And I'm saying, I'm telling you, the kid getting the D is the one who's reading the material because I'm actually interested. And then she became shocked that I claimed I was getting D's. And she went and uh, looked at my transcript and found I was in the bottom tenth of the class. And then she went on this crisis and confronted her, her colleagues who said, I've, I've discovered this kid. At a senior year, and I've found that you were all giving him D's and C's in your classes. And so she started this whole uh, revolution in her teaching style, which is she started, she stopped the top down where she's standing at the head and lecturing kids in a desk, and she made a circle. She would force kids to sit in a circle, a circle of desks. And then we all had to speak and take turns and critique each other's ideas. She started this decentralized thing. I'm sorry to brag, but it was based on her experience with me. And then she edited my first novel. To this day, I'm still friends with Ellen Goodman. We're Facebook friends. And I'm also friends with Alan Lantis, my history teacher in the 10th grade. Alan Lantis, who uh, was the first one who made me realize, um, oh, history isn't the boring memorization of facts. It's actually a story. And I can remember what happens if it's in a story and it's this evocative, you know, history is the greatest story ever told and they're somehow making it boring. Uh, I went off to law school because I was um, looking at getting out of college and driving what I called my English truck. So I supported myself through college by driving a truck and a forklift during the summers. And I realized I couldn't do anything with my English degree and people noticed I was good at arguing So I went off to law school where I was eventually kicked out. Um, I failed out of law school. uh, The I could say because uh, uh, I got a D in law writing. The law teacher didn't like how I wrote law arguments. Uh, But the real reason was I, my second novel was growing in my brain and I couldn't make it stop. So today, when I talk about, when people talk about the canon, if they talk about the Iliad, if they talk about the Odyssey, if they talk about the religious uh, uh, books, the Bahava Gita, when they talk about Nietzsche, when they talk about Freud, when they talk about Marx, um, I, I go back to this year I lived in the same city that my law school was in. I read all that stuff the first year I stopped schooling. So a lot of this is is clear to me in retrospect, that I, once I was unleashed from the pressure of having to make teachers happy, I began consuming the literature of the world at at my own pleasure. Uh, And I wrote uh, four novels by the time I was 28. I spent my 20s teaching myself how to write novels. This was all before the internet. I had no way to learn um, because I had no mentors except, you know, the teacher I had my senior year. Um, and I I saw uh, any sort of formal schooling as something that just crushed my natural abilities. Uh, On my 28th birthday, I was printing out my second 1300 page novel from the old fashioned printer before the days of email. And I realized no one is gonna publish my fourth novel, I was, um, I needed to write, I, I vowed on my 28th birthday as I'm watching my fourth novel come out of the printer, I have to write a commercial novel. I have to write a first novel. And I devoted myself to this. And, uh, that became my first novel, the ultimate rush, which was a bestseller. It suddenly propelled me into this space. People, you know, reviewers talked about this guy, Joe Quirk has come out of nowhere. He's never published a short story um, and he's written this whole novel that you can't put down. And it's like, no, actually, I basically have a PhD in novel writing because while other people were going to school, I devoted myself by myself to teaching myself how to do this. Um, I didn't do it through a classroom. I did it through writer's groups designed like Ellen Goodman's classroom uh, with people sitting in a circle reading aloud and then critiquing each other's work where you learn what actually entertains people. It doesn't matter what schools tell you. It matters what are people actually entertained by. Where do they get bored? Uh, I was in the, the uh, San Francisco Writers' Workshop, marvelous way to learn how to write the hard way, where you le- read your life's work to people, then you have to put it down and you're not allowed to talk and you have to listen to people criticize your life's work. You have to get used to criticizing. You have to learn what makes stories work. So I did that for a few years, and through this trial by fire, I honed this novel into something that people couldn't put down. It's called The Ultimate Rush. You can get it for a penny uh, on Amazon, and I guarantee if you pick it up, you will be able to put it down. I wrote that in my late 20s. Um, that put me in this position to be a writer. And um, uh, I've written a bunch of novels since. I've taught myself how to write um, uh science books because I've learned the, how to tell stories I've learned this in the world I wish I had been like Ben Franklin learning how to do things in the world and I'm a perfect example of somebody who hated school from start to finish someone who had crushed their creativity and now I work among the straight-A students who went to Stanford who are crying out for someone who can translate their expertise into something that other people could do well uh, that's something that other people can understand, uh, and that's uh, what I've done. I've 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 found my place in the world, in the marketplace of ideas, and now I hire people. Uh, and most of the people I hire, I don't know where they've been to school. I never ask that question. I don't hire that many, but but I hire people. I don't know. I didn't know until recently whether my operations manager has ever been to college. I don't care. That's not what I'm interested in. Um, I hope that the guys I make videos with never go to college and I'll take it a little further. If you graduate from college, I consider it a point against you because I started, uh, 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 blue frontiers. I co-founded that with four other guys for this, um, uh, company in 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 French Polynesia, you know, that was going to build seasteads in French Polynesia. And as we started to scale this up and we realized it was going to happen, we needed to hire all kinds of people. We needed to organize all sorts of volunteers that were inspired. And um, my co-founders and I started hiring people to do various jobs. It didn't take long before our discussions were descending into a politically correct parsing of language where people are getting offended because somebody called a group of people, guys, when one of them was a woman. And it was like they were expecting me to referee this. So so this was not a a lot of these people were good at what they did. But as far as I'm concerned, in my opinion, they were trained by their college campuses to do this kind of crap. And I'm not your teacher. I'm not your parent. I'm someone who needs you to do a job. (laughs) Okay. and a lot of these people were talented, good natured and people I wanted to hire but they had been brainwashed by their colleges. And I'm a, I'm a grouchy old man. We have a lot to do. We have a lot to get done. I'm not your teacher. I'm not here to uh, preside over you being offended and making this an issue. Um, you have to deal with people hurting your feelings in the workplace. Um, um, if someone sexually harasses you, talk to me. If, if you're arguing over pronouns, I don't want any part of it. Um, uh, 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 so I want to... I. I want If you tell me instead of spending four years in the marketplace learning a skill, you spent four years in a college uh, learning to be self-righteous, I'm, I consider it a mark against you in my attempt to hire you. Because out here in the world, you need to make stuff happen. Nobody cares if your feelings are hurt. The people you're, the people you're working with might not be your friends. They might just be working with you. They may not like you. <laughs> they're working with you because they 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 need you as a colleague. Um, it's not school anymore, and and you're an adult. And if you're in your late twenties and you're still getting upset over pronouns, you you've been hopelessly brainwashed and you can't work with me. So I, I hope this message gets out because I'm not lying. I'm not taking a radical tack. I really feel this way.
0: I Joe, I thank you so much for sharing that story because honestly, we have a lot in common there. Um, and, uh, I'll be really brief, but, uh, you know, I came from a similar situation. I was bored to death by school, couldn't stand it. It really was not designed for, uh, you know, people who are restless trying to get out there and just be active. It's not right for kids, especially for young boys to be sitting in a classroom. It's just, it's, it's proven that that's not an effective teaching style for them. Uh, like you, I I was a boy scout. I'm an Eagle scout and, you know, it's, you know, being sort of a nerd, it's not a, Uh, a kind of environment that that is healthy and can allow you to unleash your ideas and i think it's what you described with both needing to write that book accidentally writing a 365 page book uh, it's i think that's a, a something that a lot of other people have within them that they haven't uncovered that they have a creative passion some sort of thing that needs to come out of them they need to create it but they've been Uh, beat down by the system, beat down by the education system and academia to following rules and directions instead of following what their own interests are, what their own passions are, and uh, and what you described with your classroom sitting in a circle and being able to share ideas as sort of a different, uh, a new innovation. I had a similar experience, except instead of being in the classroom, uh, I actually found myself in, in college. I only went to one year of school at UMass Boston and I found myself uh, wanting to drop out because I was listening to podcasts, learning more driving to and from school than even being in the classroom. And, and I was learning about stuff that was genuinely interesting to me, like listening to you on Joe Rogan being like, wow, like, you know, you can do big things. You can go out there and you can uh, you can take on massive problems. And so I dropped out of school and, and, uh, you know, instead of, uh, you know, looking at my peers and watching themselves drink themselves to death and, you know, it's a vomiting, you know, in self-deprecating you know self way, you know, hating their lives, hating their regimen and their structure, I was able to just be free and go work for, start selling different products, work for startup companies. And it led me to a similar position where all of a sudden I was hiring college graduates for, uh, you know, the company that I helped co-found is called Sungrade Solar and uh, you know, hiring these college graduates who they've been programmed to, to think a certain way and not even really act independently. And so a couple of things came to mind when you were telling that story that I'm so eager to find out. Um, and if, if you're willing to answer these questions, I, I would love to love to know the answer. So one is when you mentioned your writing process, how you learned to write a novel, uh, in your 20s. I'm curious, what is the writing process that you've discovered? And on a completely different note, when you mention you don't ask candidates or applicants about their, uh, if they have a college degree, something that I also don't do, because I also don't care about, uh, what do you look for? What values do you find important in, in applicants, people that want to work with you?
1: Well, they're, they're, wow, there's, there's two different uh, questions there, and I can, talk a, I can talk about both. I can talk about the writing process. I mean, I guess the second one is easier to answer. Um, so I, I recently hired, man, first of all, when I was young and looking for a job to support myself as a writer, and I was broke and living like a monk, it's so hard to find a job. Now I'm on the other side of it, and I'm like, it's so hard to find qualified people that just do their job. I just can't believe it. So it's been a long, hard road to uh find uh Carly Rose Jackson, who is my operation manager at the Seasteading Institute. And um there's a lot of things I love about her. Number one, her integrity. Um so she's just very honest, and she 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 wants to, she she actually cares about the mission and she she follows rules, she doesn't cut corners and doesn't, you know, try to take advantage of things and make sure, uh, uh, you know, she has a she has, she, her core is her values. But also, she's good at the things I'm terrible at. Uh, you know, very creative, artistic people like me are bad at multitasking. We're good at focusing. We're bad at uh, keeping track of lots of things. And she is really good at everything I suck at. Uh, so number one, you you have to be easy to work with. You can't bring your emotional baggage into the workplace um you have to add value to what i'm trying to do uh so not only you know we have a limited budget we're a we're a nonprofit, but you know i've only worked with her a few months and i've already given her a raise because i'm afraid someone's going to hire her away from me (laughs) (laughs) don't let that happen yeah um and also because she she really deserves it at this point she shouldn't she shouldn't uh Live like a broke person while she's p- providing a great service to me. And I see the potential for growth. Uh, this other guy, uh, Jackson Sullivan, who works with Praxis, I, I don't care. He, 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 I don't even care if he can read or write. He makes great videos. He has a good voice. He's, and I can see him developing the skill, and I see the potential for growth. I also see that other people are going to take him away from me. Uh, Uh, if I don't keep it interesting for him because people are seeing his videos and Liberty uh, uh, students for Liberty has already hired him. Um, I'm making a documentary about the first Seastead with uh, a guy who has all the, all the signs that would say, not let a girl date him. You know, parents would say, don't date that guy. He's covered in tattoos. He's got crazy hair. He's uh, I, I don't know if he's ever been to school. I don't know if he's graduated from college. He's also not that verbal. Like I'm i uh, uh, I'm a book writer and I'm working with a guy with um, an artistic visual sense of the beats of a video. Um, so he makes things incredibly concise I and mean, he cuts out all my marvelous script, you know, and my marvelous plans for how this video is going to go. And he makes it tight and controlled. And he's just so talented. Why would I be interested in what letters were next to his name when he was a kid? So I definitely, I want, you know, school shouldn't even exist. I mean, before school came along, people just wanted to know if you can provide a service. It's a voluntary relationship. Show me that you're good at this. If I think you can help me, I will pay you. I'm also worried about other people hiring you away from me, so I got to think about how much to pay you. That's the only way it ever works. Uh, if you have a PhD in video making, or even worse, if you went if you studied to get an MBA, uh, not an MBA. Uh, what's the thing you get if you that gives you a degree in writing fiction? That makes you yeah, less likely. Know. That makes me less likely to, to hire you. I know so many writers that <laughs> done that crap. Uh, because it's all these academic people teaching you how to be artistic rather than how to entertain the audience. So the, I, I, the, I didn't answer that question quickly, but your first question, how do you, what's my writing process? Okay. Uh, you don't choose to write, writing chooses you. And, and sometimes people come to me and say, I want to be a writer. And I'm saying, well, I don't like people who want to be a writer. I, I like, I want to talk to people who have something to write. So there's a difference. If you like the idea of the status you get from being a writer, that's not something I was ever interested in. Uh, If you're an artist, something consumes you and you need to get it out. And so that's what happened to me as a kid. I still remember walking home from school and a story started growing in my mind. And I ended up taking it up to a run and I jogged home so I could get home and get this out. Uh, So I spent While I was doing poorly in school, I spent um, my high school years um, writing poetry uh, to a melody sort of like the Iliad, where you'd actually sing it. I wrote probably a thousand of these poems by the time I went to uh, college. Uh, I never showed anybody. I had a huge folder. I was too embarrassed to show anyone. Um, And then in, you know, and then in, in, my, uh, in college, I continued to develop this poetry thing. And I feel like every good novelist is a failed poet. And when I was 20, I remember reading through all my juvenilia and being so embarrassed by how bad it was. I burned it. <laughs> I burned it all. And then I spent 20 years, uh, I, not 20 years, I spent my 20th year giving in to the college scene. Uh, I stopped writing. I became fat. I did my first drinking. I never, I didn't, I went to, I never drank any alcohol until my uh, uh, junior year. And then my senior year, I discovered the word processor. I started writing. Uh, there was no natural, there was nothing drawing me away from this natural story I became compelled by. And the novel emerged by its own. So when I wrote a novel at 21, I'd already been writing since I was, telling stories since I was 13. I wrote a story when I was 13 and shared it with my friends and they all passed it among each other. They liked it. So the thing I was good at was growing in me. So um, my first novel was probably, I, I had a sitting, I can see it right now. I pulled it out. I want to reread it to, to see if it's as good as I thought it was. <laughs> then I became self-conscious about being a writer. And I spent the rest of my 20s writing very long novels, basically getting my torment out. Uh, and they were artistic, they were all over the place, they were too influenced by William Faulkner, <laughs> uh, they were over ambitious. Uh, so I probably wrote, wrote a million words with four novels uh, that I think, not having read them over, are probably pretty bad. So I had to th- realize that I needed to meet other writers, I never met any. I needed to learn what entertains an audience. I needed to learn about plot and structure. I needed to stop reading literature and start reading about the craft of writing. I had to realize my problem is not creativity. My problem is disciplining my creativity to entertain other people and illuminate them and delight them. That's very hard to do. So um, that's what I've since learned to do. And I, I have strong opinions about how you write a book. So a lot of people pick up the c Seasteading book and think it's great. Uh, I wrote several thousand pages as I discovered the best way to write this book. The book is, you know, you know, about 375 pages, about the same amount as my first novel. But I have thousands of pages of material that I cut out because it wasn't good enough because I get, kept finding a better way to write it. So, I mean, if you write a book, you're basically going to the world and saying, just give me 10 hours of your time. Don't go to Facebook. Don't turn on the TV. Uh, don't watch that cat video. What I have to say is so compelling, you need to give me 10 hours of your time. In order to be that guy, you have to really know how to tell a story. You have you have to know when they put the book down because that part got boring or because the tension got lost here. And it's really hard to do. So um, I don't think I got good at that. I don't think I've ever gotten good at it. I think... Um, I'd say I've, I've probably written 10 novels and published, I've written 10 or 12 books. I've published five or six.
0: Wow. Yeah. So, so, uh, you, you mentioned disciplining your creative process and I'm curious, does that mean you sort of focus on certain hours of the day? Is there like a, a you know, how did you create structure in your life to write?
1: Well, well, first of all, you have to be consumed with the need to get it out. Yes. And doing anything else has to be a torment. And if, and if that's not what's happening, then don't write a book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> because I've written books for other people, and they think it's going to be easy. And in order to write a book, you need oceans of time. You need eight hours a day. You need silence for eight hours a day. And you can't switch off. And you know, making tea is a problem. Um, so I, it's been tough in the new world because I, 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 um, I feel like I want to write the seed novel, but I also feel like um, younger people are switching to this YouTube way of taking in information. You know, books were invented because we couldn't talk to each other across distances, but you really need to hear a voice. That's why you and I listen to podcasts as we drive. That's why now we're listening to more podcasts and we're writing books. So I'm trying to learn the original craft of storytelling and I have to learn from young people. But when I was writing books, I remember working with, you know, I used to go to four writers groups a night as I was honing my novel um, and everyone was using email and texting each other. Um, and I was like, no, I, I have, I have my book on a computer that's separate from the internet because I need to focus on my book. I don't want the temptation to go check my email or text anyone. And I remember um, we had these writers groups where the writers group was relying on me to produce something every week that they could criticize, and a lot of these people would go a week and not produce a chapter. And I'm like, you should be producing chapters every week, and you should show up every week with new material as you're learning to be a writer instead of showing up to listen to me and critique my stuff. And they yeah. used to cancel sometimes. People would say, oh, I can't make it Wednesday. And I remember um, I showed up for the writer's group and um, I'm ringing the doorbell and nobody answers. And I'm like, what the hell is going on? I came all this way to get get feedback from all these critical people in this chapter so I can learn to be a writer. And I ended up walking around to the guy's backyard and finding him in his like back garage. And I'm like, what the hell's going on? I'm like, we're supposed to have a writer's group. And he goes, oh, we canceled. And I said, what do you mean you canceled? And he said, well, didn't you get the email? I'm like, no. He's like, well, I sent the email. And I'm like, so no one came because you, you sent an email. And I'm like, when did you send this email? He's like, oh, it was like an hour ago. And I remember saying to him, I, I said, you're all never finishing your books.
0: <laughs>
1: and I quit. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I kind of being a dick, I, and I, I turned my back on him and walked away. Uh, I'm right, by the way. None of them ever finished their books. I mean,
0: yeah, it sounds like if they weren't focused on it, if they weren't writing an hour before, you know, if they weren't distraction-free focused on that, then
1: yeah, it seems like. Yeah. That. If you're checking your email every hour, you ain't writing your book, man. Um, so, well, now I'm paying the price of that because when I got involved with the c Seasteading Institute, I'd never done anything except on the internet, except check email and check Google. Uh, um uh and so now at the C study gets to do institute i have to learn all this stuff i don't know how to do a spreadsheet or i don't you know i i boycotted the internet cuz i thought it was an interference with my um writing yeah but then when i get into the internet when i get more involved beyond google and email uh i i i i, I was exposed to all these new ideas like um you know libertarian philosophy Um, And then I start, you know, I realize the value in having access to the global brain. So I've been behind the eight ball, rapidly learning how to communicate, not just through a book, but also through videos, through podcasts, through interviews like this. Um, And uh, I'm now learning again, how to be like a YouTube personality, uh, how to edit video, uh, how to make um, podcasts that people want to listen to. It's a completely different art. And it's the original art that books were invented to replace, which is sitting around the campfire and talking. Mm-hmm. So now, as a guy in his 50s, I'm reaching out to kids that aren't even 20 yet and guys in their 20s who have grown up in this world of this new form of communication, which I kind of think is superior. And I'm trying to learn again um, how just to talk how to tell a story, how to communicate, uh, through a YouTube video. And I think it's marvelous. So, um, in other words, the learning process never ends because the innovation never stops. And I feel like the old publishing industries in which I succeeded are going down. They're going down, man. As pe- uh, uh, the next book, I'm going to self publish. I'm done with these people. These, uh, That's awesome. these major publishers who act like my colleges.
0: Yeah. Right. Wow.
1: Yeah. Are,
0: are there any uh, books or are, are there any books you'd recommend on, on learning storytelling or learning of the creative process the, or any that you sort of draw inspiration from?
1: Well, I have books to recommend that um, help me go from a struggling writer to a professional writer. Please. And in, in general, um, so if you want to write a book, I'm going to throw these books out there. Uh, I've never recommended these books to anyone who have then used them Uh, except, except for Erica Mailman, who is actually now a published successful writer who writes both young adult novels and adult novels under different names. So the, the first book that taught me to write the first book I published was called how to make a good script. Great. Right. By Linda Seeger, S E G E R. And the thing about script writing, um, I don't have a problem with characters and dialogue and uh, imagining fabulous worlds. I have a good imagination. I have a problem not making it boring. I have a problem making it so that you can't put it down. In other words, I have a problem with plot. So the thing I had to learn is how to make a skeleton that we don't even realize the unconscious reasons why we enjoy a movie. Uh, and the thing about scripts is there's very few words in them and there is no fancy writing or interior inspection. It is purely a skeleton that guides a director on the beats of this story and the three act structure. And what is the turning point uh, in act one? What is the turning point in act two? Why do the characters always make love at the end of act Two, why not earlier? Um, Why do all these stories seem to follow this format that some people have an intuitive feel for? But I did not have an intuitive feel for that. So, when you learn the craft of script writing, you learn the basic bones. How do you end on a cliffhanger? How do you slowly increase tension? Why, Why does every character, you have to intuitively feel not just their outer struggle, but their inner struggle? You have to think about these things and condense it, right? So I read that book. Uh, it made me draw out an outline for my novel. And that's what caused me to become a best-selling novelist. The, uh, the other book I really like is How to Write a Damn Good Novel. Um, and what I love about both those books is all the other books are about how do you get in touch with your inspiration? How do you, you know, look at the birds and feel your inner memories? Um, I don't give a crap about any of that because I don't have a problem with that. I I am not looking for inspiration. I'm consumed with inspiration. How do I direct the fire hose in such a way that I'm not just blathering all over the place and boring you with my thousand page novel? How do I discipline it? So for me, I had to learn the craft of screenwriting and script creating before I learned how to write a novel based on plot. So that's what happened. That's what helped me. Um, uh, yeah, now I'm learning how to be a YouTube guy and a video maker by the, by the only, the oldest way people have ever learned since we were sitting around the campfire is I'm apprenticing to the video guys I'm hiring who are very good at what they do. And I'm learning, Oh, I'm learning from Jackson Sullivan, who's not old enough to drink yet. (laughs) How do I write a script for a one and a half minute video that answers the question, well, what about pirates? Where I don't go on for five minutes and and putting footnotes so you can check the citations and how do I answer that question in a minute and a half, which is what people need? Um, So I'm learning in the real school, which is life, which is through collaborating with other people that are good at stuff and the great privilege of being my age is that when I was 25, there was no way in hell I knew anything about anything more than a 50-year-old. Than a uh, except maybe what bands were cool and what clothes were cool or what words you should use in order not sound like an old fart. Uh, because the way you learned was by accumulating experience by uh, attaining what used to be called wisdom. And you had to learn it the hard way. You had to go to the library and learn. You had to go to school and learn that craft. You had to be out in the school of hard knocks. Now that I'm in my 50s, I'm looking at younger people, and I'm just like, man, what I wouldn't have given to be them. I can literally work with a 19-year-old who spent the last three years learning to be an expert in this particular area, and he knows way more than I do about that. And so now I go to really young people who I may be smart in all the ways of experience or whatever, but I don't know Jack about what they know that I need to do what I need to do. So now I have this collaborative process with really young people who can be extreme experts in things I don't understand. And it's, it's such a privilege because they bring the energy and creativity that teachers understand. Like a lot of teachers, they like working with young people because even if they're naive and they're immature, they, they have a, a creativity that hasn't been tamped down yet. Uh, or they haven't learned what works and cut out things that don't work. And they come up with surprising insights. Uh, and then by the time they're in their 30s, they're really hitting their stride. So you can become as experienced in your domain as a 20-year-old, as I can, as a 52 year old in my domain, because the learning has been so accelerated by the process provided to us by infinite information on the internet. The problem is there's also the temptation of being caught up in other things that distract you. So that's the great struggle I think of young people today. I but agree. yeah, it's a, it's a real privilege to, to, to work with young people in a way that it never has before.
0: Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time because for young people, if you have an iPhone in your pocket with a data plan, you have more access to information than any other person that ever lived generations before us. So more young people have access to more information than ever before, which is really promising. But then the problem is, is the distractions with social media and all those things. So being able to tune your focus towards, uh, you know, learning and growing in a particular field, it's like, it's there for the taking like all, all those classics that you mentioned that you yeah. read uh, on your own, those are f- like free on the Kindle store. Anybody has access to those on the, in their pocket. They can access the, the best information in the world. It's just a matter of sitting down and having the bandwidth to actually appreciate it. And that's another problem that I have with universities and schools is that not only are people usually uncomfortable in those scenarios where they're learning stuff that they might not have a full interest in, uh, but it's actually taking away their ability to focus and taking yeah. away their interest in. They they do no reading because all their required reading makes them hate reading. Yeah, and to me, a huge tragedy because for free, you could just turn to your screen, turn to your phone, and actually learn the stuff that you're going to find interesting and, and helpful in your life. Uh, again, with without getting into with for free, without getting into college debt, without you know having these unforgivable loans, um, it's it's crazy to me.
1: Yeah. And there's nothing more stressful than, than uh, abundance and wealth and the wealth of information we have pouring into our lives is is, is very stress inducing because you don't know which way to turn. And I, I'll just give you one example. I wrote a book, uh, let's see, published it 12 years ago. Um, so I was researching it 15 years ago and it was a science book and it was about taking obscure scientific papers and translating it into funny stuff. It's called, it's not you, it's biology, the science of love, sex, and relationships. Right. Mm-hmm. So I was living in Berkeley at the time. I was a few blocks from the campus and the the angle I got, I had to basically steal the papers. So what I would do was I would, uh, I think I got, I borrowed my, I wasn't a student, but I borrowed a, my roommate was a PhD student and I used to take his ID and go through the gates and go into these stacks and go up to the fourth floor and find uh, you know, use their primitive computers to find the name of the study and where it is. And it would take me, you know, sometimes a half hour to find the book that I could pull out and get the, the paper out. And then I would take the thing to the copy machine. And I'd do 10 cents at a time. I had a, I had dimes and I would print out the study. Uh, and then I'd use the stapler. I had to pretend I was a PhD student and then I'd put the book back and then I would walk outside and I'd be so excited to read the study. I would sit under a tree and be circling and writing and then thinking of ways I could describe this paper. And then I'd go home and translate this paper into a chapter in my book. So it'd be like an afternoon I would spend doing this. Now I can literally Google the title of that paper and it appears on my screen and I can read it right then and there. Like it's, it's, it's astounding uh, how That's much funny. easier it is in, in 15 years. It's amazing.
0: That that reminds me, you you mentioned Ben Franklin a couple times on this, uh, yeah, podcast here. Uh, it reminds me of a story when Benjamin Franklin was young and he would steal a book from one of the only guys in, in town that had books and he would steal the book, read it overnight and return it, uh, by morning, uh, sort of, you know, uh, you know, breaking the rules. And then, uh, when the owner of the books discovered he was doing this, he just let him read the books. He just gave him access to the library because it's, which (laughs) reminds me of what you just told me there.
1: Yeah. You remind me of one story. Uh, When I was a kid, I was so bad at school. I didn't, I was intimidated by this process of getting a library card. Yep. So I used to find the book, throw it out the window, walk around, (laughs) get the book, take it home, read it, Bring it back to the library. Sneak it back on the shelf. I did that for years because I didn't understand wow. the library card process. <laughs> <laughs> and
0: they would just give it to you for free.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's hilarious. I, I was intimidated by the. There's a paper you have to fill out, and there's a. I, I was like too naive and dumb to. I was intimidated by all these smart librarians. Um, you you also you told me when you shared your story, which I really appreciate. You made me laugh. La- remember something I've never remembered before as significant, which is when I showed up to college, um, I made friends with certain types of guys, musicians and creative people. And by the time the second semester came along, all these guys dropped out. So uh, you just made me realize the type of people I was naturally drawn to were the people that couldn't handle college and left. (laughs) I didn't think of that until you were telling your story.
0: Wow. Yeah, it's, I, I think in, you know, again, I think it's really like a, uh, I think there's a lot of people that don't realize that college isn't for them. They're just sort of funneled in that direction. And, and you know, you've been told your whole life, you got to get into a good school to get a good degree. So you get a good job, that whole myth. And so people just sort of go along with it. And then it doesn't take them long to realize like, this is just not for me, I need to get out of here and, and you know, tap into to this Whatever it is, whether it's writing a book, whether it's writing music or whatever your your ambition is, uh, it's 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 interesting to see that unfold in so many different people.
1: Yeah, and uh, you know if I could just give people perspective for, from someone my age, twenty years ago, uh, I, I also enjoyed learning while I was driving, and there was something called the teaching company uh, that they had this great pitch, which is we find the best prof- did you hate school? Well, the reason you hate school is because you're forced to listen to your local teacher who is not necessarily the best at what they do. They're just the person local, you know, locally. But the teaching company would record the best teachers in the world, or at least in the country of the United States, and then put them on cassette tapes. And then you could send away for these lectures. And so while I drove, I would listen to the history of philosophy and mourn the fact that I didn't have this teacher <coughs> in my classroom. Uh, so you know, I used to have to, you know, I I would write it, you know, as as someone who worked as a babysitter while I was supporting my writing, I would write a check for $228 and send it to the teaching company and wait two weeks for them to send me this big package uh, of cassettes that I would keep in my car and play the cassette tapes. Um, So I could get access to these great teachers. And that's how I learned about the history of philosophy and and the philosophy of science and I devoted many hours uh, to listening to this in the car. Now, every time I get in the car for free, I download uh, lectures by Jordan Peterson, uh, who, who to me is like one of the best teachers I've ever heard. He, you know, I just listened to his, yeah. uh, his, his, his series on personality. I've never seen students spontaneously break out into applause at the end of every lecture. It was the most illuminating thing I've ever seen, and I'm just about Jordan's age, and I'm just like, man, if I had had a teacher like that when I was young, that would have made such a difference to my life. Um, and this isn't even his public figure stuff. It's the stuff he actually does in classrooms.
0: Yeah. Great I, stuff. I think what he's doing is so phenomenal. It's And it's honestly like you could have never seen it coming. Uh, you know, his, his whole Bible lecture series, like to think that he could sell out stadiums or sell, you know, huge auditoriums to talk about the Bible and, and a bunch of, you know, 20 something year old guys would show up bright eyed and ready to learn. It's something that it's, it's crazy to imagine that this is, you know, what he's been able to create. And I'm with you. I think like, uh, you know, everything that he's talking about and doing it, it's so helpful. And the fact that people have access to hear him is part of the reason why, as just a, you know, he was just a unknown professor, what, five years ago. And now, uh, after, you know, appearing on podcasts and YouTube, now he's a, Huge sensation that everyone is able to learn from, and now he's got like you know twelve rules for life, one of the best-selling books, best-selling book by a Canadian author of all time. Like it's crazy, it's awesome.
1: Yeah, got the book, and I just started his uh, his, his Bible series, and you know when I listen to the quality of the questions, or the uh, at the end of his lectures, or the quality of the um, comments on YouTube, like sometimes I t- cheer, tear up. Cause I'm like, look at the demand that young people, especially young men have for something like this, like how much it means to them. And it's always been there. And they're being told that they're spoiled and they're young and they have no character and all they needed was something like this and they're transforming their lives. And it's just so moving. Um, And I just, uh, you know, I would have given anything to have that to listen to when I was 20. It would have set my life on a much easier course.
0: Well, I'm excited to see what the the results are from that. And, you know, it, it, I think it goes in line with, uh, you know, the, the mission that you're working on with the seasteading, you know, what Jordan Peterson really emphasizes, and it's something that really clicks for a lot of young men is the idea that happiness is not what you're looking for. It's responsibility and seeking responsibility and taking responsibility for your environment, your actions, everything in your life is actually going to lead to a deeper sense of meaning and I think what you're doing by, you know, taking, trying to take responsibility for the situation that we find ourselves in politically, environmentally, technologically, and saying, how can we innovate outside of this and create a scenario where we can unleash all these, all the talent, all the, uh, you know, brilliance and all these people that are dying to do something with their lives, do something impactful, meaningful. And, uh, you know, it, it falls right in line there and, and, uh, it, you know, I think a lot of people, what you're doing really resonates with a lot of people because they want to see solutions to problems that right now we don't have obvious solutions for.
1: Yes. Unleash the brilliance. Uh, that's why yes, I yes. got involved with seasteading. Unleash the brilliance in, in superior governance and rule creating. But that's the change that's happening in the world. Our old structures that are mo- monopolistic um, are have been holding back the creativity of people and tamping down their individuality and they must be unleashed from all these old structures and technology is allowing us to do it. And uh, man, it's, it, it, what a challenge to be young right now. You're either going to be wildly distracted by a crazy ideology, or you're going to tap into the wisdom of the ages way before, you know, you have access to more than Aristotle does. You know, you, you you could be, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. All the, the, the the learning and ex- that, that's now available to people. And,
0: yeah.
1: and I love that Jordan Peterson is like, life is hard. It's about you and your character and you're getting passionate about politics and ideologies. It's just a Rorschach test to make you feel better about how you feel. And you have to confront, why do you really feel the way you feel? And you have to fix that. Uh, and it's true. You, you, uh, you, you got to learn... You got to uh, take on the responsibility of the challenges and and that's what will make you feel better. And then you can earn your way to affecting other people, the world.
0: Absolutely. Well, Joe, I feel like I could, I could ask you questions and talk about this stuff endlessly. Um, but I know, you know, you probably have other things to, to tend to, I don't know. Um, you know, what your schedule is like today but um, you know I really I thank you so much for your time today sharing the story sharing all this information it's incredibly valuable to me and I, I'm really really looking forward to seeing uh, what comes next on the horizon here
1: it was a, a delight and an honor to talk to you Patrick thanks for letting me go on at great length and asking all the right questions and uh, I, I'd be proud to share this uh, podcast interview which is my new favorite. Uh, as as widely as possible through the sea channels. So I, I, I'm I'm grateful.
0: Thank you so much, Joe. I hope we can uh, I can have you on the show again sometime. Maybe when we get some more updates from the Sea Institute, we can continue the conversation. And I, I look forward to seeing your progress on YouTube and podcasts and and seeing uh, everything grow. So thank you. All right,
1: you. I'll, I'll keep you posted. Thanks, Patrick. Looking forward Thanks. to it again. Awesome. Thank you.